Take that! Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. This is an original episode on stacking the deck that I uh, recorded with my father, Jeff. Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark, and I'm joined tonight by my father, Jeff Clark. G'day, Dad. How you going? Hi, Theo. Good, thanks. In tonight's podcast, we are continuing our look at uh, this interview with Jenny McCarthy about autism. Um, and there's going to be a bunch of different fallacies we'll look at, but the specific main one we're going to look at is stacking the deck. Right, uh, stacking the deck, the other terms we've used for that, or we've seen used for that, is concealing counter-arguments and description is as follows the advocate deliberately conceals or avoids counter arguments to his or her own position in order to defeat the opponent in such circumstances the motive of the deck stacking advocate is to win the argument at all costs he or she is not interested in arriving at a solution to a problem or the truth of the matter under discussion even when the deck stacker is aware of compelling information which would be a significant assistance to the opponent. His or her attitude is that it is up to the opponent to make the opposing case. Example. Homer Stimson is arguing with his neighbour, Ned Flinders, about gun control. People should be allowed to protect themselves. What if someone breaking into my house has a weapon? With a gun, I'll be able to keep my family secure. To which Ned replies... I just think it would be too diddly dangerous if everyone had a gun, there'll be more and more shootings. Homer has an internal dialogue with his brain. He thinks, that's true about society in general, but if I keep the conversation to breaking and entering, he then says, that's not true. If everyone had a gun in their home, there would be less breaking and entering as criminals would be frightened because they would think, they might end up facing a gun-toting homeowner. So there would be less criminal acts and therefore less shootings. Comment. In this example, Ned points out a potential problem with Homer's initial argument. With more people owning guns, it seems likely that there would be more shootings. Homer thinks about this and sees that Ned may have a point. His tactic is to limit the discussion to breaking and entering. He knows full well that Ned's argument applies to gun control in all areas of society but he limits the discussion to an area where he feels his argument has a chance, i.e. he stacks the deck in his favour. Homer argues that everyone owning a gun would be a crime deterrent, specifically against breaking and entering, and thus, through unjustified and implicit extrapolation, less crime and less shootings. In the present example, and if Ned were a reasonable person, he would find many weak points in Homer's position, despite the deck stacking. However, it's also important to address the deck stacking per se. The seeker after truth in such a situation would make explicit reference to stacking the deck and would repudiate the use of such a tactic whenever it's used in argument. 
It should be noted that the term stacking the deck is sometimes misapplied to situations where the composition of a discussion panel is biased in favour of one side of a controversial issue. Producers and presenters of radio and television discussion programs rarely take the trouble to ensure the panel members or interviewees are numerically equal or equal in terms of their ability to present a cogent argument. While the expression stacking the deck seems like an appropriate description for such practices, it might lead to confusion with the standard usage. A better expression might be stacking the panel or panel selection bias. We regard stacking the panel as a reprehensible and pernicious practice which leads to ungovernable bias in television and radio current affairs journalism. In our view, the only corrective to this bias will be to give us our own program and to let us have a free hand in choosing the on-air talent. Okay, so that was a reading from the book. Um, so this example we're going to look at now actually has... It basically, it's um, got both those examples we just talked about in the book there. We've got an example of stacking the deck in the way that uh, the entire conversation that's involved in this interview is all about, pretty much about autism and the link to vaccines. And it doesn't... It deliberately avoids discussing any of the other actual causes of autism or any of the actual real research being done by real scientists in regard to autism. But it also does give an example of stacking the panel where you've got essentially Jenny McCarthy is on the show and she's got free reign for the first about 10 minutes of it. So this is referring to the last podcast where we did uh, with Larry King live and it was all about autism or all about Jenny McCarthy. And then the next guest is David, uh, uh, I can't remember his name, but we'll see in a second. The next guest, he comes on and he's also uh, uh, someone who thinks that vaccines have, have caused autism. So the, about the first 15 to 20 minutes of the show is purely the uh, people who think vaccines cause autism or are a contributor to autism. And then finally they start to bring out some of the other scientists and people who actually might know a little bit about uh, autism. And so there you've got an example of stacking the panel as well. But the, let's just have a look at the, um, uh, the first quick uh, little bit of the clip um, and then we'll come back to it. with us as she will throughout the entire show. We're now joined by David Kirby. David is the author of a provocative New York Times bestseller, Evidence of Harm. The subtitle is Mercury in Vaccines and the Autism Epidemic, a Medical Controversy. You are not a doctor, right, David? No, I'm a journalist. What led you to this? I was the politics of the situation, the Homeland Security Bill back in 2002. A bill was passed and a rider was slipped in to dismiss lawsuits against drug companies for having put this mercury-containing preservative into the vaccine. It's in the law? Well, it was in the law, and then it was rescinded, and now it's, this is the reason we have a vaccine injury court, so these families can go in. That is the reason court in Atlanta, right? That is correct. The case in Atlanta with Hannah Pauling, and we're here to discuss this debate whether vaccines are related to autism or not. I'm here. I've never said this before, Larry. This debate is over. Vaccines can trigger autism. It happened to Hannah Pauling. It happened to many other kids. I've confirmed it, and we need to deal with this. When you began the study in the book, did you have a belief? 
No, I was agnostic up until about two weeks ago. And as I've been reporting on this more and more, as I reported on the Huffington Post last week, there are many, many more Hannah Pollings out there. All right, yeah, so the the first thing there is the, the actual um, government itself in that case with Hannah Polling did not admit that Cause there's a causal link between vaccines and autism. If you Google uh, Hannah, Hannah Polling and Stephen Novella, Stephen Novella from the Skeptics Guide to the Universe podcast, he's got some good posts about it, explaining it. Uh, it just takes about two seconds to type her name in. There's an article in Time magazine from March 2008 that uh, basically points that out as well. The I'll just quote from that directly. It says, The polling case is causing deep, deep concern among public health officials eager to reassure parents that vaccines are safe and indeed hugely beneficial. In a public statement on Friday, and this was from March of this year, 2008, Dr Julie Gerberding, Director of the Centres for Disease Control and Prevention, insisted that, and I quote, the government has made absolutely no statement about indicating that vaccines are the cause of autism, as this would be a complete mischaracterisation of any of the science that we have at our disposal today. Basically, the Hannah Polling uh, case was that and I'm no expert, but from what I understand of it, was that she was a, was a very unique in that she had some kind of um, underlying cellular disorder that was aggravated by vaccines and that caused brain damage with features of autism spectrum disorder, but it wasn't actual autism, it just had features of autism. But again, actually go and Google the um, Stephen Novella thing and you can follow the whole dialogue about that. Uh, my point is that, that they're essentially, again, picking and choosing and stacking the deck. So they're just picking this one little sample that gives that appearance uh, that that um, there might be some kind of link, but they're not getting into it in any kind of depth. And so that's just their way of trying to uh, make it look like the government has admitted something when, in fact, they haven't. Yeah, I, 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 I think um, this might be a bit of an extreme or slightly false analogy, but... Um, if you were looking at something like um, the the role of airbags in collisions, that sort of thing, um, I'm, I'm sure there'd be cases where unfortunate children um, were actually um, severely injured or even fatally injured by an actual air, airbag uh, in a collision because of the way they were positioned or the circumstances of the particular collision. And uh, it... It's just one of those unfortunate things that a, a very, very few individuals can, under certain circumstances, be injured by something that's designed to improve safety. Um, a, a workman wearing safety boots with thick soles and metal soles um, could uh, uh, have a work accident that's attributed to the actual metal sole, which is normally designed to stop those accidents happening, or a metal toe cap. Uh, but you have to be careful about looking at that sort of data. You can sympathise and empathise with the individual case, but it's not in itself a reason for uh, reviewing um, uh, something which is uh, proven to be um, beneficial, uh, far more beneficial than it that's is. That's right. Uh, than the over- yeah, the overall. That's right, drawbacks. and that was that's even if it is the case that this happens. But this has you know, so far been demonstrated. Well, conceded once. It still hasn't even been de- it's considered in, a, in law in a deal made by lawyers, not not done by scientists and science. So it was, if anything, the government just trying to cut their losses, as far as I understand. But yeah, I mean, the main thing is it's certainly not that simple, and and they they're trying to simply gloss over that by saying they have one kind of um a particular 
result that vindicates every single other claim they're making whilst ignoring all the other all the real research into autism and all the genetic factors and all that kind of stuff that's that's you know going to be far more beneficial for us to understand and know about in the long run not that you should investigate this vaccine link and they have done it and they found there isn't one well certainly it's not obvious if there is one so perhaps more research but certainly you wouldn't advocate you know getting rid of vaccines or as we move on to the next bit reforming the schedule as they go on to so we'll have a listen to the next bit of the clip now the reaction there should not be stop vaccinating the reaction should be let's reform the vaccine program so the parents feel better about bringing their kids in and that we can protect herd immunity without the collateral damage that I do believe has happened in at least some autism cases. Jenny, will you agree that some cases have nothing to do with vaccine? Yes, which makes it more puzzling. Absolutely. You know, um, environmental toxins play a role. Viruses play a role. Those are all triggers. But vaccines play the largest role right now. And, and something needs to be done. You know, testing these kids for immune issues you know, that would help so much changing the schedule. You know, I don't understand, as a precautionary measure, why don't they do this? If everyone is screaming, is screaming this and they're so worried about parents going into offices right now, telling the pediatrician, everyone's going, I'm too scared to vaccinate my child. This is the new parent's number one fear. I'm afraid to vaccinate. I am not trying to start this global non-vaccinating world. I'm trying to implement change. In all honesty, this is both of you, you Jane, are you anti-vaccine? No, I'm not. Because if we had no vaccines, we'd have a very scary world. You're not against polio vaccine, for example. No, I, but I would like to see a different schedule. I would, like, I would like medicine and vaccines to be individualized to the child. Hard to do that, wouldn't it? Well, I think it needs to be done. Are you anti-vaccine, David? I'm not anti-vaccine at all. I'm pro-vaccine, actually. I got a lot of criticism from some parents for that. But I think if we're going to do it, you get one chance to vaccinate your kid and do it properly and do it without causing harm. How many do to you, Jenny, in programs like this, the percentage of children getting vaccinations is dropping. Mm-hmm. Think that's good? I think it's only good because it's the only thing that's going to shake up the CDC to do something about it. And, you know, it's a damn shame that we invited them here on this program on World Autism Day to come sit with us so I can ask them questions on behalf of the autism community. And they denied their appearance again, which, of course, they're going to give their statement. And where are they? You know, my message to them from the community is this. They might have silenced some of our children, but they will never silence the mothers. If I was pregnant and had a boy, I would be scared to vaccinate too. You need to find a doctor that can find an alternate schedule. GenerationRescue.org has three of them on there. Okay, yeah, and so I mean, there's a couple more points to make there. First of all, the she put there's a burden of proof there. They talk about reforming the vaccine uh, program, and my question to them is, well, what do you mean specifically? Do you, have, do you have a new schedule that we should be following that you base on some kind of scientific evidence? And so they say that there's this kind of assumption that you should reschedule or you know, change the number of shots and when you're going to get them and so on. And Okay, that's fine. Make the case for that. Give me some evidence that we should be actually be doing that. And as far as I know, they don't have any or they're not giving any evidence, certainly not on this TV program. So there's a burden of proof there already that, that they have to meet. Well, the, lawyer, the other thing is the lawyer uses terms that are overgeneralized and, and not scientific but but sound almost scientific so he talks about yep. the immune system 
I wish I had a dollar for everyone who talks about the immune system and doesn't know anything about it. Mm. Um, but he also says, and this is reminiscent of another debate uh, currently around the place, um, he also says the issue is settled beyond all doubt or something like mm. that. Um, the science is settled or, you know, in, yep. in, in their favour. Um, and that that's a kind of a... It's, it's a bullying assertion that's designed to rule out the possibility of any further discussion of the other point of view. Well, it was just an outright lie in that particular case. Going back to that Time magazine article that I'll put a link to, as it says here, it says, the decision in terms of this Hannah Pollan case, however, comes as a surprise to experts on mitochondrial disorders. In response to the Pollan case, the United... Uh, Mitochondrial Disease Foundation has released a statement saying there are no scientific studies documenting that childhood vaccinations cause mitochondrial diseases or worsen mitochondrial disease symptoms. So as a matter of fact, the, if anything, the jury's on the, the other side. Basically, you can't, a court case doesn't decide science. A court case decides compensation and so on the erring on the side of and it never even made it to court anyway it was wheeling and dealing so in back rooms behind the court so it's just a complete outright falsehood that he's saying that and just uh, i just need to make a comment too if there are any lawyers that happen to be listening to our podcast um although my personal belief is that lawyers uh are universally pustules on the face of humanity um it's i i know that it's possible there are some good lawyers out there and uh I, almost by definition, any lawyer listening to this program would have to be a good lawyer. That's right. Oh, well, and you know that there. You know, I've used a couple of lawyers that have got me out of some sticky situations that I don't want to mention now. You know, so they they're good. <laughs> Just joking. I've never had running to a cropper with the law. Um, yeah. So that I mean, that's the first thing they talk about is that the burden of proof. If they want to change the vaccine schedule, then they need to give good reasons why. Not that they think there might be something wrong, but where's some evidence that they're right. Uh, and the evidence needs to be that what they do is going to improve, not, you know, because for all they know, they could be making it worse like, without any kind of yeah, evidence. Yeah, the other thing just to mention too, she claimed they found three doctors, um, that's three doctors yeah. in the United States yeah, who had wow. alternative schedules that they could offer, but she didn't say whether, whether in fact these three uh, presumably general practitioners had come up independently with the, the exact same alternative mm. schedule or whether yeah. in fact their schedules are all over the place. And uh, to say that you should approach your doctor and ask for a different schedule without specifying the schedule and without specifying where you can read about that schedule and where you can read about the results of uh, vaccinations according to that schedule, it's just totally disingenuous. disingenuous. Oh, it's just absurd. And, and the next thing is then she talks about being precautious and have the precautionary you know, kind of principle. And it's like, well, again, you're not being precautious when you change without any good evidence that changing is going to don't be beneficial. So it's actually stupid to change given the lack of evidence towards that. So you need to study study what's going on more if, if there's something is to study. And as later on in the program, uh, I'll play that little bit of the clip now, you actually get one of the, um, uh, the I think he's the, the uh, president of the Paediatric Society, something like that, he comes on and he says, well, actually, we have changed the schedule over the last 10 years based on evidence. And they'll change it based on evidence. They're not stubborn. They change it. She of herself in the first part of the interview showed that, you know, 10 years ago there were 10 shots or whatever, and now there's 36 or whatever it was, you know. So so they do change it based on evidence. So where is your evidence? And that's the, the simple point they can't ever meet is the burden of proof. They're making a claim. They need to provide the evidence for it, and they can't do that. Moreover, 
there is a lot of evidence as to towards the cause of autism, which they completely ignore on the entire show, basically. They just pay them a little bit of lip service and then get back to this whole vaccine debate. So they're completely stacking the deck and giving people the appearance this is the only kind of fruitful area of research, and it isn't. The research in autism is ongoing, and they're, you know, discovering a lot more about it. Obviously, they talk about it being a spectrum disorder because there's so many different variants of it and so on as well. Genetic components, there might be environmental factors, but we need to find the real ones, not just the kind of the, the gut feeling of, of, of the mummies that are out there using their mummy instinct. Well, no, that's how you get a hypothesis. It's not how you make a decision in the long run. David, you stay with us, and Jenny, of course, you'll stay with us. And when we come back, we'll be joined by three prominent physicians, one kind of in the middle, one who agrees and one who disagrees. On this World Autism Day, this is our special look at this uh, dreadful disease and what we can do about it. We'll be right back. We're back. Jenny McCarthy and David Kirby remain with us. We're joined by Dr. Jay Gordon, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at UCLA Medical School. He recently released an educational DVD called Vaccinations, Assessing the Risks and the Benefits. I have it right here in front of me. And he, uh, you are her son's doctor, right? Yes, I am. Okay. Dr. Harvey Karp is a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics, a best-selling author of The Happiest Toddler on the Block, and does not believe there is scientific evidence of vaccine and autism linking. And Dr. David Taylor is president-elect of the American Academy of Pediatrics. He also does not believe of the scientific evidence between vaccine and autism. I've been calling it a, a, a disease. It's a condition or a disorder, right? Is that the correct term or anybody disagree? Yeah, you have to say so, Larry, because it seems that there are multi-factors that, that influence it, some genetic, perhaps some environmental. And so it seems more of a spectrum than a specific disease. Right. Where, uh, Dr. Cott, is David and Jenny and Dr. Gordon, before we hear from him, where are they wrong? Well, I think that most important, where, let's start where they're right, which is that we need to do something now to find out the reasons for children developing autism, because it is ramping up, and it's something that we need to be concerned about. Well, they're and they're also, well, they're wrong to say that um, we can, well, they're, number one, they're wrong to say that the vaccines are proven to cause um, uh, autism. If you look at the studies, and they're mounting up now over the last, over the last um, uh, 12 years, you see that these studies show over and over again that mercury is not associated with autism, that measles vaccine is not associated with autism, that kids who have autism don't usually have an immunization that occurs right before the onset of their symptoms. All those studies are not independent studies, though. Well, there are many, many studies, and some studies have flaws and some studies right. don't. But, for example, in California, if you look at what's happened with... We took mercury out of the vaccines back in around 2002. You're saying there's no mercury look, in the vaccines right now? When you look at, when we've taken out... Any, I, I, the mercury, is mercury still in the vaccines? Just, we have, just we have, flu vaccines. We have removed... No, no, that's that's it. It. no the tetanus shot No, I mean it's just the the main thing was that um again he he gets a chance to come on and now say hey there's these other there's these other this other point of view that they don't cause it but as we'll see next week when we look at the uh, hopefully we'll do the fallacy of browbeating 
the the guys the the ant the the skeptics you know even though actually no they're the confirmed the standard scientific medical belief people but they come across as being the naysaying skeptics um they're the ones who get interrupted all the time you know the true believers and you can see if you just look at the expression on her face the entire way through this interview she's so hardcore and true believer you yeah know, just nothing's going to get through you know simple-minded certitude it doesn't matter but you know, it he just gets interrupted the whole way through, and so we'll look at that next week when we look at browbeating. But you, she, basically, they get to come on right near the end. They're still outnumbered three to two, and they don't get to speak as much. So there's an example of stacking the panel this the whole way through this show. It's basic, you know. It's it's the classic. It's not quite as bad as sometimes it is when they you know they get one minute at the end, but it's the classic way of setting up people to make these guys coming and look. Um, like this, the naysaying and the meanies who don't listen to the mummies and so on. And I mean, that, that's a pointer to, I think these guys do a quite a good job that if you go on, if you're debating somebody, creationist, whatever, the number one thing to do is to be happy and nice and civil because that's, imp- that, that's far more convincing than any of the weight of the argument you say. And so I think that's where McCarthy fails a bit. She looks actually a bit angry and a bit too much too um, fervent in her belief and so it comes across as being, I mean, if you're already on that, Point. Can I can yeah. I just share a subtle um, thing that I do sometimes, which is a kind of stacking deck, uh, but it doesn't offend anybody who's involved in the discussion. Um, I, I make bunny ears over the top of the head of the person <laughs> that's talking to me, so everyone looks mockingly at them, but they themselves don't get hurt, <laughs> and they don't, they don't feel offended because they don't know that I'm. I do the old or, or the loser side. I, I do the old pretend to scratch myself, but I'm actually giving them the bird the middle finger. That, that's always a good one too. Okay, yeah, yeah that's that, that's good. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so that was um, a look at uh, stacking the deck and the difference between stacking the deck and say stacking the panel. Uh, that was uh, podcast number eleven. So we're up to well and truly into double figures now. Uh, that's not quite podcast number eleven finished. Uh, a little addendum to that, this podcast, which is another example of stacking the deck that occurred to me while I was mixing the podcast, uh, which is why it's going to be up late, so which I apologise for. The example that occurred to me as I was mixing it um, was one I've actually written about, which is Michael Moore in Fahrenheit 9-11. So, first of all, don't complain about any of the views I'm going to express in terms of whether you're for or against the war in Iraq. That's irrelevant. It's just an example of uh, stacking the deck. And it's an indisputable example of stacking the deck, uh, as you'll see in a moment, because it's simply a fact. The example I'm going to use is his list of the Coalition of the Willing, that is the multinational force that went into Iraq, and you'll see that he has completely stacked the deck. So we'll listen to that example from Fahrenheit 9-11 now. The United States is prepared to lead a coalition of the willing. That will do it. When I say we will lead a coalition of the willing to disarm him if he chooses not to disarm, I mean it. Who's in that coalition of the willing, Howard? You will find out who's in the coalition of the willing. The coalition of the willing. Roll call. The Republic of Palau. The Republic of Costa Rica. The Republic of Iceland. Of course, none of these countries has an army or, for that matter, weapons. So it looked like we'd be doing most of the invading stuff ourselves. But then there was also... Romania! The kingdom of Morocco! Morocco! 
Morocco wasn't officially a member of the coalition, but according to one report, they did offer to send 2,000 monkeys to help detonate landmines. These are men of vision. And I'm proud, I'm proud to call them allies. Afghanistan. Afghanistan? Oh yeah, they had an army. Our army. I guess that's one way to build a coalition. Just keep invading countries. Yes, with our mighty coalition intact, we were ready. One could almost say it's the mother of all coalitions. America! Yeah, so the actual coalition of the willing uh, was made up of um, 49 countries. This is just straight off Wikipedia. Uh, and only four besides the US contributed troops to the invasion, and that was the United Kingdom, Australia, Poland and Denmark. 33 provided some number of troops to support the occupation after the invasion was complete. So completely doesn't bother mentioning the main, the actual four main forces that were involved. You know, Britain controlled one entire area of Iraq, I believe. Uh, so actually had a quite a significant contribution. Australia contributed over a thousand troops, I think. I'm um, not sure about Poland and Denmark. The point is, he fails to mention the major contributors to the, um, the coalition. And so thus is a clear example of stacking the deck. And, and, you know, it, that, it's that level of dishonesty that makes you then not trust what someone's telling you in the first place. And as I always say to people who defend Michael Moore, I say, well, if you're right, why do you need to lie? Why do you need to stack the deck? If you're right, you don't need to do that. Um, and that's not to say you couldn't be right. It's just to say that if you are right, you shouldn't have to fake it like that. And lest I be accused of stacking the deck, what is fair to say is that the U.S. is obviously the major contributor to the war in Iraq uh, in terms of money and certainly in terms of troops, but nevertheless, you still should actually give a fair representation by telling everyone who actually is involved and then just point out in saying that, you know, 95% or whatever it is of the troops in Iraq are American. That's not stacking the deck, that's just stating it as a fact in that case there. Alright, well that's enough for me, I better get this thing mixed down, and once again, sorry for the delay in getting the podcast out, I hopefully won't happen again in the future, but I'm not making any promises. No one's paying me for this game. So that was the original episode on stacking the deck, I'll be back uh, in a fortnight with another episode. Thanks for listening.